right. So we are on Clubhouse. We are on Instagram Live, on Discord. And welcome. Welcome, welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, January 14th. And this is uh, the Maximus call-in radio show. I believe this is the sixth, the seventh uh, one that we've been doing every single week. Uh, on the dot, Thursdays at 6 o'clock Pacific, 9 Eastern. And I'm super excited to have everyone join. And uh, we have uh, a long list of questions, actually, that people have submitted. And as always, we give priority to folks who want to ask their questions live, because I think it makes for a more interesting discussion. So um, why don't we get going, Ishan? Looks like, Diego, you're the first online with a question. Or Michael, if either of you would like to chime in. Uh, if Diego doesn't mind, I'll go ahead and ask my question. Please do, Michael. Yeah, so uh, first off, I just want to thank you and Ishan for hosting these calls every uh, every Thursday night. It's been very consistent, and I've learned a lot. Um, my question is um, regarding testosterone. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, I hear it all the time. Um, men should think about their testosterone, but I'm not sure what testosterone really is, and why should men be thinking about their testosterone and getting their testosterone levels checked? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what it is, um, why you should get it checked, what normal levels are, and different ways of enhancing it. Um, so um, testosterone is essentially the, the master male hormone. There are many hormones um, that are uh, part of you know the endocrine system, but testosterone, um, in particular is particularly important because it's it's one of the masculinizing hormones right um so when you're uh when you were literally in utero when your mom was uh, pregnant with you the amount of in utero testosterone helps in fact uh differentiate an embryo and, and makes them a boy versus a girl um and it, this actually even shows up later in life the amount of in utero testosterone that you have uh, is phenotypically expressed in what's called the, the 4D, 2D digit ratio, which is essentially the ratio of this finger to this finger. And you can see like this finger of mine is slightly larger than slightly longer than this finger. And the difference between the two is essentially an expression of how much testosterone you were exposed to um, as an infant um, or actually in utero technically. So um, why is that important or useful? Um, because it basically uh, uh, um, shows how much um, testosterone you were exposed to and, and actually can be used in like predictive, in prediction. So there was actually a great BBC special um, that was kind of like a battle of the sexes. And this professor went to a track team and measured all of their 2D, 4D digit ratios to see who basically had the highest level of testosterone that they were exposed to when they were in the womb, so to speak, um, and then use that to basically predict who would win a running race. So the guys ran a race and as predicted, the, the guy who had the highest uh, 2D, 4D digit ratio, which means that had the greatest amount of exposure to testosterone early on in life was actually the person who ended up winning the race. So um, it, it, it testosterone does matter for things like sports performance uh, very much because that's why in fact, you see all the doping um, scandals and allegations because people who naturally either have higher levels of testosterone or artificially enhance their testosterone um, through pharmacological means tend to perform better because it increases uh, muscle mass, decreases uh, body fat, um, and increases the ability to you know lift weights, do power sports, sprint. Um, so it's it's essentially an ergogenic. Uh, aid. So uh, that's one of the reasons that it's um, it's important is it, it it enhances performance, especially on an athletic level. Um, aesthetically, obviously, it has um, effects not only in terms of, as I mentioned, increasing uh, muscle mass and decreasing fat mass, but um, uh, the ana that those those are what are called the anabolic sort of effects of testosterone. Testosterone does uh, break down into a molecule. Um, uh, called DHT, which is more androgenic and androgenic is like literally the more masculinizing thing. So, uh, like DHT, uh, lets you grow a beard. Uh, for instance, it makes your voice deeper. Um, and so all, all the, you know, um, uh, effects that you associate with the onset of puberty, for instance, 
um, or sort of phenotypic expressions like body hair, chest hair, beard hair that are associated with uh, essentially being male uh, and makes us sexually dimorphic from females, meaning we look different than females, um, it's responsible for. So um, uh, that's kind of on a physiological level. And then there's some interesting psychological or psychiatric effects of testosterone as well. Um, when testosterone levels are higher, uh, people do have a um, self-reported greater sense of confidence, uh, drive, uh, energy levels, um, and, and almost like a sense of dominance, right? So the interesting thing about it, though, is it doesn't necessarily make one like a, the stereotype of a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal that's super aggressive and wants to start a fight at any particular moment. In fact, there's really interesting research in which they gave men testosterone replacement therapy. So this is external testosterone that was injected into the body. And interestingly, it, it actually improved their mood. So they were often actually friendlier, uh, calmer, uh, lesser um, self-reported symptoms of anxiety and depression. So it kind of actually makes sense where if you think that testosterone is essentially a biomarker that may be a proxy for where you lie in sort of the social dominance hierarchy, where higher testosterone males tend to, because uh, perhaps of whether it's being more confident or looking or feeling or performing better, uh, tend to achieve more. Um, they, they tend to be higher on the dominance hierarchy in terms of their uh, power, status, et cetera. And as a result of that, um, actually can relax a little bit. Um, so it, contrary to sort of uh, uh, stereotypical notions, I, I think it's actually mood regulating when testosterone levels are at least normal, if not high. Um, so that's the other reason that I think um, it's, it's powerful is, you know, hormones are different than, let's say, neurotransmitters. Neurotransmitters being things like serotonin, uh, dopamine, acetylcholine, et cetera, um, in that they have kind of very profound effects in mind and body. Uh, uh, so uh, I think it's, it's, it's a very powerful hormone in a lot of ways. Now, um, to the point of like, why should it matter to you and, and why should you measure it? Um, it's not routine to test for testosterone. Um, like if you go and get your annual physical, for instance, sometimes they may do blood work. Sometimes they may do not. It's usually like a CMP or CM, uh, CBC that they're doing, um, which is just like st measuring standard things like your blood glucose levels, but they don't generally measure testosterone. I actually think it's a shame that they don't because, um, it's actually increasingly a problem on three different levels. So one, there's a generational, uh, effect that we're seeing where testosterone levels, are decreasing 1% per year, right? So a guy in 1980 had 40% higher testosterone levels than a similarly aged guy in 2020. And we're not 100% sure why this is. It, it may be a number of factors, obesity, smoking, but also potentially these endocrine disrupting chemicals. Everything that we use is plastic from, you know, or has, uh, you know, whether it's plastic microbeads and toothpaste, toothbrushes, all of our food is stored in plastic. Um, and, and these may be sort of trickling into our system, um, uh, including all the cosmetic soaps, uh, all, all kinds of stuff that we use, um, and maybe disrupting our endocrine uh, system much more than in previous generations where people kind of used um, less ultra processed stuff, less ultra processed food, etc. So generationally, testosterone is going down. Second, it does also go down with age. So you as an individual um, about over the age of 30, your testosterone levels will, um, typically go down on average 1% per year. So you can almost imagine basically every single decade as you age as an adult, it's going down by about 10%. Now, again, that's an average. It doesn't mean that it's absolutely going to happen to you. One of the biggest factors, of course, that contributes to that is obesity. So, uh, at the same time, people are gaining about a pound per year as an adult as well. And so I, I don't think it's a coincidence that as you're gaining weight, your testosterone levels are going down as well, because we know that um, sort of central adiposity or extra body fat that we carry, particularly around our stomach, um, has a lot of an enzyme called aromatase, which breaks testosterone down into estradiol um, and, and thus may be contributing to the drop that we see in testosterone. We do know, though, that in healthy um uh, adult males, if you are able to not gain weight as an adult, you can keep your testosterone levels actually um, pretty stable over time. 
And in fact, there's like interesting evidence from Olympic athletes back in the 60s and 70s um, who had their measure their testosterone levels measured back then and maintained a very obviously healthy lifestyle as they aged into their 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, were actually able to maintain very high levels of testosterone, even higher levels than healthy young men in their 20s and 30s who are Olympic athletes. So um, it's the other thing to kind of be aware of. And obviously, it, it, it just highlights how important lifestyle is to kind of almost your if this is the trend, it's going down 1% a year, your job as a man, in my opinion, is to alleviate that trend to make sure it's as flat as possible, or at least the decline is as slow as possible by really taking care of yourself. But the third reason is there is there is some just individual variability in testosterone levels. Now, whether that's because of just genetics, uh, whether that's because um, maybe you're maintaining a healthy lifestyle, but who knows? You maybe you're you're exposed to these endocrine disrupting chemicals, and you're not even aware of how much exposure that you're getting. Um, or maybe due to lifestyle factors. Let's say you're getting six hours of sleep, and that may be affecting you more than other people because you really need, let's say, eight to nine hours of sleep just based on your kind of physiological makeup. Um, so you may be low testosterone or at least non-optimal testosterone. You have no idea. So I generally encourage people to um, uh, ask their primary care physician um, if they have a good relationship um, for it uh, with them for to get tested in terms of their testosterone levels. Most doctors, unfortunately, will say, unless you have a good reason or you're symptomatic or you're, you're showing some sort of symptoms, they won't do it because insurance companies need to have a justification to pay for it. Um, I think it's a bit of a shame. Um, so that, I think it's why it's important to have a good relationship. You can say, hey, look, you know, uh, I just want to make sure that I'm not having a problem. Um, or if you are experiencing some, some symptoms like fatigue, et cetera, you can say, hey, I just want to make sure it's not because of this issue. Um, and there's other issues, uh, you know, other other um, hormones that are important as well. So for instance, if, uh, you know, I, I see patients in my uh, private practice, if I see someone who's like super, super anxious and it's not like uh, concomitant with sort of their thoughts, right? They're not worried about a lot of stuff, but they're just experiencing a lot of physiological anxiety and it's and it's all the time. I'd be like, go get your thyroid levels checked because you might be hyperthyroid. Uh, there may be something physiological going on that's not even psychological. So you want to almost just cover your bases. Um, so I think on, on those three levels, it's very useful to know what your testosterone levels are is making sure that like, A, because of the generational bracket that you're in, that you're not sort of low. Two, depending on your age, that you're not just having low levels because of your age or your lifestyle. And then three, just making sure you on an individual basis because of your lifestyle and your health behaviors or your exposure to chemicals uh, don't have low testosterone. I think for all three of those reasons, it's very useful to go get your levels uh, measured. Now, there's a tricky issue of what is low, right? Uh, every Depending on the type of test that you do, there's um, a different reference range. Generally speaking, I would say like a normal range, if you're talking about total testosterone, if it's measured in, I believe it's nanograms per milliliter or deciliter, uh, is usually between 300 and 900, I would say. You don't, you're not really considered to have clinically low testosterone unless you're below 267, 300, depending on the, re the lab refer uh, reference range. Um, but just because you're not, um, that, that includes like 95% of men between that 300 and 900. Uh, but just because you're not like in that bottom, you know, uh, two and a half percent, uh, doesn't mean that your levels are optimal. So if you had a level of 301, the test would come back and say normal, but normal is like, you're literally in the third percentile and 97% of men are higher than you. So now an insurance company would be like, you're normal. I'm not going to pay for any treatment. But if you're trying to be the best man that you can be and be optimal and be competitive in a hyper-competitive society, I would say third percentile is not particularly great. And you might want to try to figure out what's contributing to that. Obviously, um, you know, it's useful to review all, all your health behaviors and make sure it's not because of sleep deprivation, your diet, um, lack of sun exposure, uh, lots of other factors. Um, but there are, are sort of, you know, um, other things that you can do to make sure that your levels are high. So obviously, you know, just do a quick review of the five foundational health behaviors, make sure you're getting seven to nine hours of sleep, obviously fundamental. There's, there's clear uh, research that shows there's an associational increase in testosterone levels up to eight hours of sleep. So literally the more sleep you get, the higher your testosterone levels up to about eight hours. We're not sure if nine or 10, um, unfortunately they didn't look at that question. Uh, increases levels, but I would say just based on common sense and in the, in the linear trend, 
if you're doing a lot of physical activity and you're getting nine hours of sleep, it's probably better uh, anyway. Uh, and it's sort of an anti-inflammatory diet uh, is associated with better testosterone levels. You know, obviously the more ultra processed food that you're eating um, is very inflammatory and probably exposes you more to those endocrine disrupting chemicals that I mentioned. So you really want to get your diet under control. Fat is not bad. In fact, you want to be consuming some saturated fat because saturated fat is essentially the, or cholesterol, for instance, is literally the precursor or the biological substrate for your body to produce its own testosterone. So eating things like fatty fish, uh, egg yolks, uh, dairy in moderation um, is useful uh, to making sure that your body can produce enough of its own uh, testosterone. So we talked about diet, we talked about exercise. Um, you want to obviously, uh, you know, um, make sure that your stress is managed. Um, stress, uh, as I mentioned, in one of the previous podcasts um, is associated with its own hormone, which is cortisol. And if your cortisol levels are high, it's catabolic. Catabolic is literally the opposite of anabolic, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast. Um, and it almost antagonizes uh, testosterone in that your, if your cortisol levels are high, your testosterone levels decrease. Um, and so you want to make sure that your stress levels are under control. So that's obviously beneficial uh, from using exercise, using mindfulness, for instance, um, as an intervention to help you know, calm down, especially in the evenings, um, is particularly critical. Um, testosterone levels are affected by intimacy as well. So physical touch, um, if you are in a relationship, um, you know, intimacy does uh, increase and stimulate testosterone levels. If you're obviously around an attractive woman uh, that you're sexually active with, um, that uh, increases testosterone levels as well. Um, there's interesting, uh, there's been a lot of questions about does excessive masturbation, ex um, uh, you know, mess with testosterone levels. It's unclear. The problem is like these studies are all on a short time scale. Like if you abstain from masturbation for five days, does testosterone and growth hormone go up? Yes, temporarily. But it's unclear if you keep on doing that and doing sort of uh, quote unquote, no fap, um, as they like to call it, um, if it will as well. I, I don't necessarily agree with, um, these, these crazy bro science guys on Twitter who are like, don't masturbate ever, um, uh, do semen retention, which is not a scientific practice at all. Um, in fact, there's good research that shows that, um, orgasming as a male, uh, at least once a week is probably healthy for your prostate in terms of, um, you know, uh, producing and releasing seminal fluid and things like that. Um, now, obviously if you're going nuts and you're like masturbating three to five times a day, cause you have a pornography addiction, you should probably address that. Uh, it's unclear what the effects are on testosterone, but I think just for your general mental health and uh, well-being, you should address that. So um, if you do notice that your testosterone levels are suboptimal, um, then make sure you really focus on addressing these lifestyle um, or these health behaviors that I mentioned, because it'll significantly increase your levels. And if you want help doing that, that's obviously what we're doing here on Discord. We have the accountability groups and, you know, a lot of people are working on their New Year's resolutions, uh, not just to increase their testosterone levels, but just to be a better, healthier uh, uh, man in general. The nice thing is these things kind of go hand in hand. So the way that I would kind of put it is you should think about testosterone as almost like the canary in the coal mine, or, or as I like to call it, like the check engine light for men, in that if you're doing everything right, you're eating well, you're sleeping, uh, you're, um, you're sleeping right, you're managing your stress you're having meaningful, intimate relationships. Um, you know, you're, you're maintaining good focus, you're dopamine fasting, you're not going nuts on internet, social media, gaming, etc. Um, then your testosterone levels should naturally be good. And so you can almost take it as like the one number that's kind of telling you along with actually your ability to like, uh, you know, have regular, uh, healthy erections. Those are two kind of, um, you know, useful check engine lights to make sure that you're healthy uh, as a man. Because if you think about it, if you're, if our one sort of biological purpose is to reproduce, you want your testosterone levels to be high because um, testosterone is essentially correlated with the ability to produce sperm. Uh, it's uh, promoted by a hormone called LH or luteinizing hormone, which increases testosterone, but it also increases basically sperm count. Um, and then obviously the ability to maintain an erection is, is obviously ne necessary for uh, successful, you know, uh, you know, a sexual encounter and copulation. Um, so those are, those are two useful things to kind of pay attention to. And if you notice that's changing over time, right? Like you're measuring your testosterone levels, let's say every six to 12 months, 
you notice it dropping, it's like, oh, okay, there's something kind of going off here. Or same thing, if you're losing your ability to maintain your erections, um, then that's a useful sort of check engine light of like, okay, there's something going on here. Maybe it's stress, maybe it's sleep, maybe it's something else. Uh, make sure to address those things. So uh, that's why I think it, it matters a lot. And then there there are um, a ways of increasing testosterone on the sort of pharmacological side of things. The first thing I think is really important is, is actually another hormone, which is vitamin D. Um, so there is associational or correlational data that shows that uh, vitamin D is essentially correlated with testosterone. Now, we don't know because there's, I, I haven't seen a lot of like randomized clinical trials. There have been some trials. I would say the evidence is mixed, but uh, people, men in particular, who have vitamin D levels between 80 and 100 uh, nanograms per, I believe it's deciliters, um, have the highest testosterone levels. That's actually way higher than most people have. Generally, like if you're below 20 to 30, you're vitamin D deficient. If you're about 50, you're considered like in a good zone, but actually 80 to 100, which is rare, is really considered optimal um, and maybe optimal, in fact, for uh, testosterone levels. So uh, making sure, obviously, you're getting enough uh, sunlight uh, without burning your skin, obviously, or taking supplemental vitamin D may help you get up to your natural physiological baseline levels of testosterone. And then there are actually um, pharmacological, like prescription pharmaceutical ways of increasing testosterone um, as well naturally. Um, we'll save that for future podcasts. Um, I think there's some really, really interesting uh, stuff coming through the pipeline um, that can essentially stimulate your body's own natural production of testosterone um, in a way that's that's pretty safe and pretty effective. Um, but we'll we'll talk more about that in a later show. Appreciate that answer, uh, Cam. Um... Real quick follow-up question, though. Um, mm -hmm. Is is soy an endocrine-disrupting chemical? I hear a lot of people say avoid soy. Is that is that a real thing? Is that scientifically justified to avoid soy? Yeah. I mean, if you ask any pharmacolo pharmacologist, they, al they always say this mantra of the dose is the poison. Um, so it's, it's it, you, the, the question is always how much, right? If you, if you have, ah, I don't know, like a, a, a handful of edamame or, or like soybeans, um, when you're going out to eat some Japanese food or a little bit of tofu um, or soy milk every once in a while, is it probably harmful to you? Probably not, I would say. However, um, like that's why I say the dose is the poison. There was actually an interesting case study, uh, which was published. You can actually go and find it on PubMed of a guy who was drinking, I think, three quarts of soy milk um, a day. Now, obviously, it's a lot of soy milk, but I don't know. Maybe the guy really liked it or something. Uh, it was Ms. Mil milk Substitute. But he actually literally started developing breasts and developing breast tissue um, because it may be sort of functioning as an estrogen receptor agonist and binding to the same receptor that estrogen does. Because uh, soy does have sort of what are called phytoestrogens or plant-based estrogens that mimic uh, the estrogen that your body naturally produces. So I would say... Is soy harmful in low doses? Probably not. But in high doses, there's at least on the basis of uh, small case studies, uh, enough that makes me concerned that you probably shouldn't be guzzling uh, uh, soy milk all the time. I, I'm actually not a fan of milk, uh, all these fake um, milk alternatives. I, I don't get it at all. Milk is not unhealthy. Um, uh, it, it doesn't even, it defies sort of logic. Every single person who's listening to this call on radio show spent the first year or two of their life literally raised on milk, right? It is, it is the mammal food. Um, and the cow milk, while slightly different than human milk, is close enough um, that it's, it's, not a, it's not a terrible thing. Now, obviously, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a growth agent, right? It's, it's supposed to make babies uh, you know, bigger. So do you need it in adulthood? No, I don't think you need dairy. But it does, you know, contribute positively, provides protein, calcium, and, and other interesting nutrients. If you are lactose intolerant, what I would suggest is to find um, a lactose-free version. My favorite brand actually is Fairlife. Um, it's ironically owned by Coca-Cola. So despite the, the, the shit sugar um, sweetened beverages they, they put out, this is actually healthy. It's essentially ultra-filtered milk. They don't modify it in any way. They just filter the milk so it lowers the... Um, carbohydrates, increases the protein, and it removes the lactose. So I think it's like 99.9% .9 lactose-free. So people who are lactose intolerant can actually enjoy milk. It's a little thicker as a result of the ultra filtration, but it's tasty. It tastes like normal milk. Um, and it, I think it comes in like 
skim 1% full fat uh, varieties as well. Uh, make sure you 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 buy the um on they they do have sweetened varieties that are like chocolate milk and stuff. Don't buy that. Just buy the regular Fairlife if you're gonna have it. Um, or or otherwise, just you know, drink milk. I, I'm per personally more of a fan of fermented dairy if you're gonna have dairy, meaning um, Greek yogurt, skier, uh, kefir. Um, there's studies that show that actually dairy consumption associationally is lower uh, associated with lower rates of type two diabetes. And that effect is even more true for fermented uh, dairy. So uh, I personally don't drink milk. I, I guess I will every once in a while, but it's not a regular thing. Uh, but I do, but I do consume yogurt. Um, and I do think that's a healthy thing, particularly the strained yogurts that are lower in carbohydrates. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. Pleasure. So up next, uh, Hitman, if, if you're online, yeah. So my question was, do you think, I mean, do you think that behavior change has gotten harder uh, since being inside in COVID? I'm sure that's probably more on the yes side, but um, I guess like if you can expand on that and talk about um, how people can really get the energy to do a lot of the stuff they want to do, because I think a lot of it comes out to implementation. Things are a lot easier when you'd be going out to the office and then go to the gym right afterwards and kind of just feed off a lot of the energy of just being outside. And now, even if you have all the information, you know, I'm supposed to sleep this much, I'm supposed to work out, you have all the things you need, it's still really difficult after a long day of work to really go and go do that if you've been inside all day, um, especially with the nature of like many of our jobs of being inside a lot uh, sure. often. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's probably, if I had to guess, it's probably net harder for most people to do behavior change, but, but here's the thing. Um, I, you know, I, I, I was actually thinking about this this past week and talking about sort of the error of the average. Uh, I don't think on like for a lot of things on an individual level, what is true for the average is, is necessarily useful for you as an individual, right? So even if for most people, it's harder um, it may not be um, if you set up your life correctly. And I'll give you a, a real example of this. Um, there was an op-ed recently actually about the importance of vitamin D for uh, preventing and treating coronavirus. I actually reached out to one of the authors who's a, a, a physician who, like me, actually runs a company. Um, and I was talking to him and I was like, man, how do you find the time to write like scientific articles about vitamin D while running a company? Because I, I published a bunch too, but I'm not publishing anything right now. I'm just like, too busy doing many other things. Um, and he was like, you know how? Uh, he's like, I cut down on 10 to 12 hours of commute time thanks to the quarantine. And now I use that time that I used to be, uh, would be commuting in order to publish research. And so I was like, see, that's a great example of the exception. For most people, I think the levels of stress and isolation and loneliness has gotten to them and made behavior change harder. For this guy, he's like, oh, great, I'm not commuting. Let me, how can I use that time to do the things that I've been wanting to do? And then obviously he's very disciplined about putting that into action. So uh, I think it's a, it's a very useful lesson to be learned from that doctor in terms of um, things that may be disadvantageous to other people can be advantageous to you um, if you use it wisely. So uh, I, I think you should like figure out a way to use it to your advantage, quite frankly. So, but to make this kind of real and applicable to you, I, I know you had messaged um, over Discord about how you're struggling a little bit with behavior change. So I'd love to hear it, just if you could share with all of our uh, listeners a little bit, like uh, what you're dealing with, like like what you're struggling with in terms of, you know, your, your fitness or exercise routine. And I'd love to just talk through it and maybe we can just kind of problem solve together. Yeah, so I would say beforehand when I would be like in the office or I'd be in school, I'd just go to the gym. I have I'd have more energy, and it would be really easy to do that for me. I I didn't have like willpower issues. It was like in my routine. Mm -hmm. uh, but now I have like a home gym set up. I have everything like Great. pretty much set up, and I can go downstairs and do all the things I need to do. But then once like I'm done with work, uh, just like going downstairs becomes. Like there's just, you know, there's way less energy that I have than I, than I had before. Like, even though my schedules were busier, I was able right. to do more stuff on the side with full-time work or full-time school. And now I have more time on my hands with way less energy. And I'm, that's the trade-off that I've gotten. Uh, well, yeah, I think it's a great point, but I, I think you're, you're, you're basically um, starting to point us in the right direction, which is, it sounds like it's not a time issue for you. It's really an energy issue right for you in terms that you're not finding the sufficient amount of energy or willpower to go and do, you know, the things that you needed to do. So let's dissect that a little bit back when let's say pre pre quarantine, pre COVID, 
when you were able to effectively exercise despite having less time, uh, what were you doing? Like what, what time were you working out? Where were you working out? What, what actually worked for you? Yeah, it was uh, right after work. Uh, I just go to the gym. It was like a 10 minute walk from work. It was kind of baked into the routine. And yeah, we had a gym. It would be strength lifting. Um, and it was pretty standard. I'd have energy for cardio and everything. Um, yeah. What time would you get, uh, typically get off work? 530. Okay. Uh, yeah. So you get off work at 530. You take a 10 minute walk. So 540, you're kind of going to the gym. And then what were you doing at the gym? What was your what was your typical workout or routine? Yeah, so I'm usually running uh, or doing first some mobility and then 20 minutes of like cardio, usually like at intervals. And then after that, it's uh, strength training. So it'd be like push, pull or legs that day. So pretty standard and then abs afterward if I had the time. And then how long, how long would you spend at the gym? It would be around two hours, like one hour to thir one hour and 30 minutes to two hours. Cause like I'd be stretching, then working, uh, running, it'd be like kind of breaks in between. And then, uh, yeah, it would take, it would, be, it would take some time by the time I got out Yeah, and sauna and a sauna as well, usually. So, yeah. Okay. That's, a, that's a lot of time. Um, <clears throat> now some of it may not be workout time if you're talking about sauna and things like that, or, or just like yeah, pure yeah. stretching. Um, how, how much of that time would you say was actually working out like at least an hour? Yeah, at least an, one hour. Okay. So let's, let's, let's compare that to what you're facing now. So now you're obviously working from home. Like most of us, um, what time are you getting off work now? 6:30 because the time zones uh, have changed. So it's usually later. Okay. So that's obviously a difference is it's a little bit later. And then how is you, how are you feeling at sort of 6:30 when you, when the, the thought starts crossing through your mind about, oh, okay, uh, done with work, time to work out now. Yeah, it's usually, yeah, I think at that point, I'm just not, I just don't get ready or I don't get set up to go downstairs. I usually just look at email or some other work-related thing or another site project thing or something else, usually, or like read up something. Makes sense. Is it possible to end work at 5.30 or because of those meetings, you, you have to stay an hour later? I could do it earlier on 5.30, but like sometimes things come up or yeah, usually I, I keep it to 6.30 just because I can get either more work done or like there might be something that came up in the middle of the day and I wanted to get more more done that day. Is but it, I could do it, 5.30 as well. Yeah, I was going to ask, is that extra, it's the hour, is it like, um, is, it, is it meetings that you can't move or is it just like work that you need to do? You could do at like whatever, seven, eight, nine o'clock. Yeah, yeah. It's usually sometimes it's meetings, but usually it, I could be, I can be re really flexible. So, okay. So, um, and then uh, have have you worked out at your home gym during quarantine? And are, are you doing the same workout that you used to do, like the the hour and a half, two hour kind of thing? Yeah, I've been doing. Well, I can't. I don't do uh, the cardio as much anymore. I kind of just walk. And then uh, I've actually took out some of this from the from the routine because I've I've been getting into back into it um so it would be around the same pretty much the same exercises except like less volume or less machines yeah that makes sense so there's a couple things that come to mind is is um if you're finding it's an energy issue then we have to you know address that so you obviously kind of probably can guess where i'm going in that if you find that your energy levels are declining which they can actually pretty rapidly, I would say, in the evening. Like there is kind of a big difference between 5.30, 6.30, 7.30 for people. If you're, depending on sort of your circadian rhythm, are you more of a morning person or an evening person? Night person? Yeah, so for working out, it's definitely evening. Um, when I work out in the morning, I usually get really tired for the rest of the day. Uh, so evening person for lifting or working out. But but what about uh, exercise aside? Like, are are you a are you a morning person? Like, do you get up early? Yeah, more. I'm the morning person. I get like most of my stuff done in the morning. Okay, so that that may be interesting in that. So if you're more of a morning person in that you have a probably a shorter circadian rhythm, um, you naturally get more tired in the evenings, right? Uh, and you probably go to sleep earlier as a result of that. Now it's it's probably better for um, if you're talking about from an exercise like. Uh, performance standpoint to work out in the evenings because um, ironically going back to question number one your testosterone and uh, growth hormone levels are higher in the evening and so if you're trying to set a record in terms of how much you lift it's better to do in the evening rather than the morning but 
what may be happening, speculating here, is that if you're a morning person, but you're working on the evening, um, it may be harder for you in the sense that your your natural energy levels may be lower in the evening. And now that you pushed it even one hour later, uh, it, you may be just like really tired. So obviously the natural solution to that is if you have flexibility with your work and you can work out a little bit earlier um, at let's say 5.30 instead of 6.30 and then do that extra hour of work you know, after you work out, then you might want to experiment with that and see if it helps. The other reason the energy levels may be dropping is because of your meal timing. Like what time are you eating lunch um, and dinner? Yeah, so I've been eating lunch at 2 p.m., which is like the Pacific Standard Time lunch because um, I'm in Central Time, and then yeah. dinner a lot later as well. After you work out? Yeah, usually around 7 or sometimes even 8. Yeah, makes sense. And then, uh, so I mean, that may be contributing as well, right? So the difference between eating at 2 o'clock, let's say you're done at 2.30, and then you go work out at 5 o'clock is... There's three hours between your last meal and working out. So at that point, you, you mostly have digested most of your food, depending obviously on the type of food that you're eating. But even that extra hour of like from 2.30, now it's 6.30 and you haven't eaten for four hours, your blood sugar levels may be dropping. There's an association based on at least some uh, experimental studies that lower blood sugar levels are associated with, with willpower. It's probably a controversial finding, but uh, probably directionally true. Um, but yeah, energy levels do drop. So another way you could alleviate that if you don't want to, um, switch your workout time, or you might want to do it in conjunction with doing a workout time is you may want to have like a mid afternoon snack or like a pre-workout. Do you ever do like a pre-workout shake? Yeah, I actually remember I used to eat a lot more protein bars before my workout or like a one or two, one usually. Um, and I haven't done that anymore. So I guess, yeah, I don't actually take that many snack breaks. I've just been sticking to meals. Yeah, and and not that I'm advocating snacking. Um, and I, by the way, I don't like protein bars for the most part. All, like 99% of them are junk or uh, even the low-carb ones are just so f full of weird fibers that I'm not sure they're great. But um, you may want to experiment with like either, let's say, between some somewhere halfway between your um, lunchtime and your exercise time, you could have a proper snack, like handful of nuts, an ounce of cheese, um, two hard boiled eggs, like healthy kind of snacks. Um, you could do that as like a small meal or, or a small snack or, uh, and, or you could have a pre-workout shake, which I generally recommend 20 to 30 grams of like a whey protein isolate, um, three to five grams of creatine monohydrate, obviously consult with your physician. Um, but, uh, you know, providing a little bit of nutrition for yourself may alleviate your, your energy levels. Um, I am not a fan of fasted cardio or fasted exercise. Uh, in fact, there was just a study that came out that showed that it uh, um, wasn't particularly effective, in fact, because they, they, there's this notion that if you um, work out and do cardio fasted, it burns more fat. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily true based on the latest findings. I actually, you don't obviously want a full stomach because all the blood will concentrate on your GI system and you want your blood flow to be in your muscles. So you don't want to obviously have a big meal uh, right before you work out. But I would say maybe like two hours before um, an exercise, having a small meal may not be a bad idea or 20 to 30 minutes before a workout. If it's a fast digesting whey protein isolate can give you the sufficient energy to do your workout. So I actually would highly recommend instead of a protein bar, by the way, just, just buy some, um, Amazon actually has a great brand of, um, grass fed whey protein isolate, take a scoop of that before you work out along with some creatine, uh, assuming you have healthy kidney function, um, is, is really solid. Um, the other thing, if you're, unless you're trying to do like a super low carb kind of diet, um, uh, you know, like a tablespoon of uh, high quality honey, um, right before a workout as part of that shake, um, uh, can be helpful, uh, in that carbohydrates obviously do give you energy if you're, especially if you're doing lifting, um, not necessary, but a lot of people, even who do keto find it beneficial because keto is probably not optimal for lifting in terms of energy levels. I found myself dragging when I was doing really strict keto. Um, and so I do what's called a TKD targeted ketogenic diet, where you, you try to consume your carbs either right before, or right after your meals. I preferred it right before because like that 15 grams of, of uh, you know, glucose, fructose, and sucrose that comes with honey 
uh, can get increase your energy levels to kind of especially get through a longer workout, if you're, especially if you're doing an hour. Speaking of which, um, on a so we've talked a little bit about timing of the workout. We talked a little bit about optimizing your nutrition in order to have the sufficient energy for your workout. But the last thing, let's talk about the behavioral side of things, which is you may be exercise you you may be creating too high of a bar for you to exercise. If I was exhausted at 6:30 and I knew I had to do a 2 hour hour and a half even an hour workout and I'm tired, of course you're going to skip it, right? Because that's a it's a very onerous exhausting kind of thing. So, uh there's there's sort of two principles that I think might be really useful is um especially if you have a home gym, you may want to really focus on being ultra efficient in your workouts. Now, if you used to go to a in-person gym, it's, it's, um, sometimes people don't like being ultra efficient because it's like, ah, I got to drive all the way here. I might as well do everything that I want to do and do like, yeah, like you said, take advantage of the sauna that's there, take advantage of certain equipment that's there. But if you have a gym that's literally at home, you can work out all the time. Um, you might want to really focus on, um, actually toning down your workouts and being a lot more efficient with them. So I would actually suggest, um, you can get a pretty good lifting workout in 30 to 45 minutes and get, uh, you know, 10, even 20 sets, depending on your rest breaks in. So the only way to do that though, is to really focus on lifting. I would actually suggest maybe you want to split up your cardio and your weights. I'm actually not a fan of doing cardio and weights together. Cause I think you can either, the principle goes, you can either work out long or you can work out hard, but you can't really do both. And it kind of exhausts people unless you're, a professional athlete or bodybuilder, and you're trying to do it for, for recomposition purposes, I, I wouldn't mix the two. Um, what I would suggest is if you're going to do some quote unquote cardio, spend, you know, jog five minutes on the treadmill, uh, do a little bit of mobility stuff uh, to get warmed up and then just go lift. But you don't need to do 20, 30 minutes of running or biking or whatever it is that you're doing. Do those on separate days. Do those really intensely. Do like a hit workout as we talked about in the previous podcast, but I, I wouldn't sort of mix the workouts together. That way you can keep it to like 30 or 45 minutes. And by doing so, uh, it's not as intimidating, right? To sort of like your subconscious mind is thinking, I can get through 30 minutes of like a workout versus shit, I got to do 90 minutes of a workout. I don't really feel like it today. So I would say, yeah, maybe think about cutting down your workouts. And then last and final note is you want to be able to be flexible and adjust your workouts on a day-by-day basis. And I think this is the part that people really miss and underappreciate is you have to listen to your body. Now that doesn't mean listen to your mind because your mind will give you all kinds of excuses not to work out, but you want to listen to your body. Um, because yeah, you just may legitimately be, um, have lower energy, right? So on days I get an eight, nine hours of sleep, I'm feeling fantastic. And I'm like, let me just go crush, you know, a PR today at the gym. But if I get six, seven hours, I'm functional. I will get through my day at work, but I'm not feeling like, oh, record setting day when I'm lifting today. I'm like, let me just get through this workout, uh, I'm, uh, you know, and, and just do the bare bare minimum. So on, on days that you're feeling especially tired, my, my, the recommendation I tell this to all of my clients is figure out what the bare minimum is that will get you into the gym, even if it's the home gym that day. So it's almost like you're having like a compromise. It's like negotiating with the parts of yourself, right? So imagine it's 6.30 tomorrow, right? You're feeling tired as usual, but hopefully less tired because maybe it's uh, you've decided to do it at 5.30. You've done your pre-workout shake uh, and some things to alleviate it. And you're like, okay, I'm only going to work out for 30 to 45 minutes, as Dr. Cam said. Even then, if you're if you're finding yourself too intimidated or or too averse to kind of doing that, Ask yourself, literally ask the parts of yourself, what is the amount that you would be willing to do? And a part of you might be like, uh, I'm not, I don't feel like working out for 30 minutes, but could I do, could I do 20? Could I do 10? Is it five minutes? Is that all I'm willing to do? Find out what the minimum is. Cause there's always a minimum. And maybe the minimum is literally putting on your shoes, going downstairs and doing a pull-up or a one push-up. There's always a minimum, but the idea is you never, ever skip the workout. So you don't give your brain the chance to avoid the workout. All you're doing is you just compromise to say, what's the bare minimum, right? And so if you if if it's five minutes, if it's 10 minutes, you have to accept that as essentially what those, those parts of you are willing to do on that day based on your energy levels. Now, here's the trick. Now, the thing is you can't lie to yourself about it, right? 
let's say you 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 kind of thought about it and you're like, I'm only going to do 10 minutes, but but I don't feel like doing a night, whatever, the usual hour and a half, two hour workouts. So you go there, you do your 10 minute workout. At the end of the 10 minutes, you have permission to go back upstairs and move on with your life. But if 10 minutes into it, at the end of that, you're like, I'm feeling okay. And I could do another five. I can do another 10. Then great. It's like you call an audible and you renegotiate essentially the terms with yourself and say, okay, I know we set a 10 minute workout, but I'm feeling pretty good. You know, do you feel good about this too? Great. Let's do another 10 minutes. And so you end up doing really a 20 minute workout. And the principle of course, behind that is the hardest part is obviously getting started. It's overcoming the inertia. Most people, once they're warmed up, they're in the gym, they got the weights in their hands. They're like, ah, it's not as bad as I thought it would be, right? So you can get over it. On the other hand, if you're really just exhausted after those 10 minutes and you're just having a shitty day, fine, call it a day and go back upstairs because at least you compromised with yourself and did the bare minimum that you decided was necessary and sufficient for that day, which is 10 minutes. Then congratulate yourself and say, okay, uh, you know, maybe you'll be better tomorrow. I might've gotten more sleep. I may be feeling emotionally better. That's fine. So that's the important thing is I really think people underappreciate this principle of like, you got to compromise with yourself and listen to your body and, and sort of the different parts of you that may not be willing to do an hour and a half, two hour workout every day. I don't think most people, unless they're super motivated or it's become, like you said, a routine like it, it did, it was back in the day, are willing to do that. So re really try to apply that principle and never skip a day. So how many days a week are you trying to work out? Four, four to five. Great. So four to five, it's like Monday through Friday, Monday through Thursday. Uh, make it your goal in this next week that you're going to go every single one of those days that you said, those four to five days, um, but you're going to compromise, right? So one day, maybe 10 minutes, one day, maybe 20 minutes, one day, maybe 30 minutes. If that's what gets you to do it and never miss miss a day and, and continue your streak, then that's what you got to do. But the worst thing is to be a perfectionist and say, I got to do workout for an hour and a half, two hours. And the, you know, I'll, I'll, the Monday you do your hour and a half, Tuesday you do zero, right? So the irony, of course, is that by being inconsistent, you only do that twice a week, you end up actually working 30 to 45 minutes on average, right? Because you're averaging an hour and a half and zero. So instead of doing that in a very clunky, inconsistent way, you might as well just like calibrate down to the level that your mind and body are willing and able to do. Thank you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I really appreciate it. This is a lot. So thank you. For sure. So yeah, I know it's a lot, but I mean, this is kind of an example of some of the things that I would go through with clients as I'm coaching them, right? You got to think holistically about what's your chronotype? What's your circadian rhythm? What's the right time to work out? Am I getting enough nutrients to have enough energy? And then am I also kind of compromising psychologically with the various parts of myself uh, to make sure that that I, I'm willing to you know, do the workout? And then behaviorally, am I also like cutting down the workouts in a way that are, are achievable, right? So going forward, like my, my general principle is you should have about an eight, eight out of 10 or an 80% confidence of you hitting any particular goal. So let us know how it goes. Feel free to check in on our next call and radio show. And I, I'd love to hear if you actually hit your four to five days next week. Yep. hundred percent. We'll definitely be going today after this. Excellent. Do that. And, and remember to use the accountability groups too. If you want other people to hold you accountable, um, yeah, make it, a, make it a goal in our, um, in our squad. Uh, and the other the other uh, guys in the group will definitely hold you to it. Awesome. Thank you. My pleasure. You're okay. How are you? Good, good. How are you? Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, you know, you said uh, you've already shared so much today, which has, uh, you know, I've started doing a lot of these things. And uh, I started tracking my tea. I went back to the doctor, got all my levels for the last five years, put it in the awesome. spreadsheet. And the, the the bizarre part is the GPs are completely clueless about a lot of these things. I mean, just it's just, you know, anyway, I, I mean, my B12 levels were really low several years ago. They had no clue. Now they're really high. And, yeah. you know, um, because I was taking them too much B12, so I'm backing off. But anyway. Yeah. The but by the way, that's that's really, really common. If you take a multivitamin or a B-complex, they, they put like levels that are way above the RDI or the recommended daily intake. Um, and the reason it's like, it's not really dangerous. I would say generally to do so is because it's water, they're water soluble vitamins. You piss most of them out, quite frankly. Um, so it's a very, very common thing that you'll have sort of, um, above normal or super physiological levels of vitamin B12 if you take any sort of supplements. Um, so it's not a rare thing to see that. So 
Um, don't necessarily get freaked out by it. Obviously, it depends on you and your your. I defer to your physician's expertise, but it's not unusual. The the funny thing is, you know, the physicians are, and I have a fantastic physician, you know, who's who's really good. He hates writing scripts, but I read that B twelve high B twelve has been very mildly mildly correlated with increased cancer because it's a growth hormone. Yeah, maybe. It's a very mild association study. I'm right. not putting a whole lot of weight on it, but taking B12 was pretty uh, revelatory for my energy. So I'm yeah. not I'm not going off it, but I'll just modulate it down a little bit. If taking two a day, I'll take one a day. Yeah, that's smart. And I, I know I know a lot of people who do that. Just uh, you want to uh, for for the listeners on the call, like um, sort of B vitamins, B complex vitamins. Are very helpful for energy that's why you see them often in like red bull and other sort of energy drinks they, they like to throw a bunch of b vitamins in with their drinks uh along with the caffeine of course um and it can be helpful yeah for energy levels but um yeah you don't necessarily um because supplements are not regulated and they, they don't the amount that they put in them is is varies all across the board um yeah i think it's a smart idea what you're doing measure your levels and then titrate it to the appropriate amount where you're getting kind of the maximal benefit with the minimal viable dose yeah, yeah. So the, the question I had, which you touched upon already, was keto and working out. So I started keto in August. So it's been almost exactly six months. And the first two months were completely, you know, shit, right? Like I felt like crap. Yeah. And I couldn't work out, you know, all those things. I do some pretty heavy kettlebell workouts. And and now I was able to go back to them, but I feel my my appetite going down and partially it could be winter. Mm -hmm. uh, but same time, my energy going down too uh, for doing weight workouts. And I just feel my diet is like the amount of calories I'm taking in, the absolute number of calories is going down. Mm -hmm. And you seem, you know, you spoke a bit about keto and working out. So if you could address that, that would be really, um, really good. And then one second part was on Twitter, you had mentioned the potassium sodium balance. Right. Oh, I think it was, was it, I think it was 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 potassium sodium, not potassium, not sodium magnesium, right? And not yeah, being eaten. Yeah. yeah. So if you could if you could expand on that a little bit. Sure. So um, I mean, part of the reason that keto keto or ketogenic diets work is that they put people in col um, caloric deficits. So they're, yes. they're they're naturally satiating diets. It's very satisfying. Obviously, you eat a bunch of meat and the eggs and uh, you know th things that sort of fit a low carb diet. So when, when they've done, you know, tightly controlled studies and they compare it to standard American diet, part of the reason it works is people eat like uh, 100, 200 calories less per day, even when they're not trying to control their calories. It's just that the food is more satisfying, satiating. And so they, they naturally cut their calories and they obviously lose more weight. There may be something obviously, um, uh, in, it's not just the calories, I would say. There may be something unique, obviously, to lowering sort of glycemic response by eating lower carb foods that may help restore insulin sensitivity, which is really important, obviously, if you're sort of on the diabetes or cardiometabolic spectrum. So it's it's both of those things. It's not just calories. I think it's a combination of the calories and the carbohydrates that make ketogenic diets effective. But it's not unusual to experience what you're reporting in terms of a little bit lower appetite or at least a little bit lower consumption of calories as a result of a ketogenic diet. But I would argue that's kind of why they work. Um, so now, Keto for athletes is interesting, and, and we could have a whole show on this. And there's lots of, uh, you know, people. I, I recommend like Peter Atia's work. He's 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 done a lot um, on sort of keto and athletics. I have a general kind of useful um, rule of thumb: is it depends on the, on the kind of sports that you're doing. Um, the the gurus in this field are um, Volek and Finney, who helped found Verta Health. They have two great books, which is um, I yeah I've watched almost all their all their videos and and yeah. read all the books yeah. Yeah. And for the people who are listening and may not be familiar, it's the, the art and science of low carbohydrate living. And I think the other one's like the, the art of science uh, of low carbohydrate performance. And that one's for athletes. Um, it, it may be a ketogenic diet may be great if you're like a marathon runner, triathlete or ultra marathoner. It seems that for like these endurance sports where you're, you're doing it for, for probably more than an hour, more than a few hours, um, switching your body from burning carbohydrates to burning fat uh, may be uh, advantageous. 
So there's a lot of like very successful, like ultra marathoners who do kind of low carb. Uh, but these guys are running like 24 hour races. It's, it's not like normal. I would say for most people, if you don't fall into that category and you're like the average guy listening to this, um, you know, call on radio show and you're just kind of going to the gym for an hour. Um, you're not really doing endurance high, like, uh, uh exercise for the most part. Uh, weightlifting is kind of moderate intensity to begin with. And second, it's kind of moderate, uh, intensity interval anyway, cause you're, you're not lifting the whole time. You're taking lots of breaks. Uh, in between sets. Um, now there's, there's, there have been studies, uh, on keto for, um, looking at it for hypertrophy. It doesn't seem like it negatively impacts hypertrophy, meaning the ability to build muscle is probably equivalent on keto equivalent ish, I would say to any other diet. So I don't think it's necessarily adversely impactful. And there's obviously lots of people who, you know, lift on keto. However, if you look at professional athletes, this has been my argument, there are very, very few professional athletes outside of those doing endurance sports. I know there's some uh, like tennis players who do it, but that like some of their matches are like three, four hours. So it does almost start to resemble an endurance sport. Um, if you're talking about sprinters, weightlifters, uh, guys who are doing more like sprint power based things that more resemble like going to the gym, there are very few that are doing strict keto. Um, and the, and the reality is it's, it's probably not optimal for anaerobic exercise where you need to do an intense amount of work in, uh, you know, a less than a minute span of time. Um, and I think quite frankly, if there was an advantage to doing keto, you'd, you'd see more athletes doing it. Um, and I don't, I just don't think, uh, it, it does confer that benefit. A lot of people anecdotally do report lower energy levels when they do keto. Now that may be because of electrolyte imbalances, um, keto does really like throw off people's electrolytes, especially when you do it strictly. Um, it has a diuretic effect. And so when you're flushing out fluids and you're just literally peeing more, you will pee out potassium, sodium, magnesium, calcium more than usual. It can make your levels a little bit wonky and then obviously throws off your energy levels. So uh, as a result of that, I would say, you know, keto, uh, is probably the best diet for anyone who has diabetes or has gone in the car cardio metabolic spectrum, uh, in terms of correcting metabolic syndrome. Um, it's great for that. It's great for weight loss. It's probably one of the best diets I would argue for weight loss. And the, the research literature seems to back that up. Um, and I think it's just, that's also, it's a great kind of, probably a optimally healthy diet, um, at least a lower carb diet, maybe not keto, uh, in particular. But if you're going to do keto and try to lift weights, um, I would say it's not clear that keto is the optimal diet for hormones. Uh, ironically, I think it was Jeff Volek, one of the, the low-carb godfathers, um, showed that uh, like carbohydrate intake is actually associated with higher testosterone levels, ironically. So um, I'm not sure it's the best diet if you want uh, optimal hormone levels. Um, and it's not, in fact, one of the, the famous Sean Baker uh, doctors, who's the, the carnivore guy, like showed his testosterone levels and it was in like the two hundreds for a guy who was like huge and jacked. Um, he may be sort of a genetically superior specimen, but uh, his hormone levels are totally whack, uh, from eating an all, all meat diet. I don't know if it's from the all meat diet or for something else, but it's certainly not optimal and didn't make me want to emulate an all meat diet after I saw that. So, um, moral of the story is, uh, I, I like the card of keto gains philosophy more. There's a whole community called keto gains. Um, Luis uh, via senior, who's a friend of mine runs it. And, you know, their whole thing is basically doing TKD or CKD, targeted ketogenic diets or cyclical ketogenic diets, which basically means they're consuming carbs, like literally like glucose or honey, like I said, right before the workout in order to uh, give them energy in order to lift sufficient, sufficiently, or you do it one day a week. So like Saturdays, for instance, that's like your refeed day. So you go from a low carb, high fat diet, uh, five, six days of the week. To that one to do to two days of the week, you're eating the opposite. It's a high carb, low fat diet in order to replenish your glycogen stores and have the sufficient amount of energy in order to lift weights. Um, and also it induces a little bit of metabolic flexibility as well. Um, so I'm more of a fan of, of TKD, CKD uh, type of ketogenic diets if you're lifting weights. So I think it kind of gets you the best of both worlds. Bye. Bye. This is really great, really, really great. Because when I started doing keto, um, my biking, I bike a lot and roughly, you know, not that many, less than four hours a week, four to five hours a week, mm -hmm. 50 miles. And my biking performance just went to the roof because I yeah. could not bike for hours without 
stopping to ingest fruit, right? Right. Otherwise, every 45 minutes, get off, eat some fruit, right? Eat some fruit. And now I could just go. Just go for hours and hours. And and so it's mm -hmm. really cool that way. But my lifting performance, I could do 100, 100 swings at 53 pounds in, you yeah. know, 20 minutes. Now I, I can't do them. It's like, seems like I'm dying. Right. So that that's 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 a great example of why it's useful as an individual. This is why I was talking going back to the theme of this podcast is is don't fall into the error of the average. It's okay to self experiment and treat yourself, uh, you know, as a case study of one. Where, as you pointed out, you're like, okay, this seem keto seems to work great for my endurance spiking, but it's not optimal for my lifting. So let's let's start doing some experiments, right? Where, um, you know, I was talking to you know a buddy of mine, JT, who does the body weight strength stuff. Um, and he found because he's very active is doing a lot of strength training can consume about a hundred grams of carbs, which is technically not keto, right? Volek and Finney say it has to be less than 50 grams of total carbs in order to technically be in nutritional ketosis. However, for that individual, he found because of the amount that he was working out, he could consume up to hundred grams of carbs, measure his blood sugar levels. And he was still, uh, and blood ketone levels. And he was still in ketosis. So you may find that actually having a little bit of extra carbs I would say probably like you probably can't have more than a hundred. Uh, but I would say it may be more flexible than people think where they're always trying to be under 30, under 50, maybe for you, it's 50, it's 75, it's a hundred. You can actually have carbs stay in ketosis. So experiment a little bit with, like I said, pre or post-workout carbs. And, and, and maybe if you want, you can measure your blood sugar, blood ketone levels, um, and see if it has a negative adverse effect. Uh, yeah, I do measure it roughly three times a week, but I, so I can do that. What I found with keto though was I mean, my mood levels incredibly stabilized. Uh, yeah, I think this is a really interesting area that's like we just don't know. There's not a lot of psychiatric research on keto, but um, we know obviously, you know, it was originally developed for children with epilepsy, um, really interesting emerging um, uh, evidence in dementia, Alzheimer's, maybe beneficial for that. But uh, yeah, I think for, um, you know, uh, other, you know, like mood, uh, access one mood disorders, depression, anxiety. It, it may be helpful. Um, and you certainly heard some anecdotal stuff, whether from you, and I've heard this from some other people, it does have this sort of mood stabilizing effect because your brain preferentially actually prefers ketones over glucose. And for some people, um, you know, that may help kind of smooth things out. But this is this is where I think the science is unclear. So I yeah, I think it's even more, it's useful to experiment, uh, see how your mood is, track it on a regular basis and see if it's better. Definitely. Okay. Fantastic. Could you briefly touch upon the potassium? Oh, potassium, sodium. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting. This is where I disagree with Volek and Finney. They, they look at associational data and find that the lowest mortality rates are around five grams of sodium uh, per day. Um, and, you know, it's important because I was saying because of the diuretic effect on keto. And that's sodium, not sodium chloride. So that's you're looking at 10 grams of sodium chloride. Yeah, they're, they're just talking about pure sodium, right? So you got to separate out the chloride. But they're saying, yeah, you should consume five grams of sodium a day. I disagree with this because I'm a little bit more in the ancestral paleo camp. If you look at hunter-gatherers, they're consuming less than a gram of sodium a day, right? They're not. It's really hard to get salt out in nature. They're not consuming five grams. Um, so I, I think this is where, you, you know, associational epidemiological data is not so great. So um, uh, I think a, like a general rule of thumb is you should get as much potassium as you get sodium basically a one-to-one -one ratio. So it's not that you need to let limit your salt intake unless you're hypertensive or have high blood pressure, then yes, maybe you want to pay attention to make sure that, you know, it's not elevating your, your, um, your sodium levels, but your general rule of thumb is eat salt to taste, like, you know, make sure your food tastes decent, but whatever, whatever sodium you're consuming two grams, three grams a day, make sure you're also consuming two to three grams of potassium a day. So it, it helps counterbalance essentially the effects of sodium. And in fact, uh, there's some argument that's saying it's not just the pure sodium levels or standalone sodium levels that are contributing to hypertension, but it's the imbalance between potassium and sodium. So you may be able to get away with consuming five grams of sodium if you're consuming five grams of potassium because they kind of counterbalance each other and uh, regulate one another. So now it's hard to get five grams of potassium. You got to like really eat a lot of like avocados, uh, baobab, tomatoes, et cetera. Um, so don't go nuts on the sodium, but I would say at least try to equalize them. The interesting thing is if you look at hunter-gatherers, though, they're consuming seven times, maybe up to 11 times the amount of potassium as they do sodium. Their ratios are way higher than modern sort of uh, humans. 
So, um, you know, I, it's, it's hard unless you're, you're eating a very low sodium and you're eating a lot of potassium to achieve anything close to what they're consuming five, seven, 11 times, um, the amounts, but that may be, we're not sure, uh, associationally the, the optimal levels. Um, so I, I would say maybe if you're, if you're really going for optimal, uh, reduce your sodium intake, um, beyond the, 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 the point which your food just tastes terribly bland, but you don't really need more than a gram of uh, sodium unless you're sweating a lot. That's a different thing. If you're biking for hours a day, you definitely need more sodium because you're sweating it out. But if you're just a sedentary person, like most people, and you're doing your, your 30 minutes in the gym, you're not sweating that much. Uh, you know, uh, uh, don't go nuts on the sodium can try to consume as much potassium as possible. And so you're going to have closer to those sort of, uh, natural hunter gatherer levels. Fantastic. Okay, cool. Awesome. Thank you everyone. We're, we're over time. Uh, had a really, really, uh, interesting call and radio show today. Um, we'll put the episodes up on, um, Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, and all, all the other places that we host it. And if you have more questions, tune in next week, next Thursday, six o'clock. Happy to answer them. Take care, everyone. Have a wonderful and productive next week.